Jasmine, so much for speaking with me today. I know how busy you are. So I really, really appreciate you uh, making the time for us and making the time to speak with us about the, about this very important subject called unconscious bias. Uh, I'm hoping that you know it will be of great interest to your, our audience uh, because it's not really explored much in this in this country, but can have. Um, such diverse outcomes and impacts to so many different people at so many different stages of their lives. Uh, so without taking you know, much of your time, let's, let's dive straight in. Uh, so for our um, um, listeners who have not heard about unconscious bias before, what is it? Um, how would you explain it? So I think what's interesting about unconscious bias is if you kind of do a brief scan of the internet and talk to people, everybody will sort of give you a definition that's around people and how we have these sort of unspoken assumptions about who groups of people are. And I wanna backtrack from that and kind of peel it back and look at what it really is because I think that's a source of a lot of problems. And what unconscious bias ultimately is, is about decision-making. And so, yes, we have this kind of unconscious mind and a conscious mind. If you go back to kind of the father of these things, who's Daniel Kahneman, what Daniel Kahneman essentially says is that our unconscious mind, um, it jumps to conclusions. And the reason that we do this is survival. If you think back to millennia ago, 50,000 years ago, um, we were as a species constantly in life or death situations. And so we developed this tool that reacted really quickly and said, am I safe? And the problem with it is that we're still using it today, but most of us are not in life or death situations, but we're using a life or death tool to make decisions. Um, and of course there are people who are in danger and there are people who are life or death situations, which is why this tool will never go away. So often it's right, often it works really well and it just looks at a situation and goes, am I safe at decision-making on that level? And today you might look at it, how do we use it? It's these shortcuts. So for example, you don't have to pull out your mobile phone every time you see a red light and go, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> right? You know, red light means stop. You know which side of the road to drive on um, and so on. And it's those kinds of things that we would call um, an unconscious tendency. And this is defined as heuristics. So when these unconscious processes go right, it's a heuristic, it's a rule of thumb. So I know what a red light means. I know which side of the road to, to drive on. And it's only when these heuristics, these rules of thumb go wrong, that it becomes a bias. So for example, if you're used to driving here in the UK, you know which side to drive on, it's a heuristic, it's a rule of thumb, it serves you, you can sleepwalk sadly through driving. Um, but as soon as you take a British driver and put them in Italy or in the US, that heuristic is all of a sudden wrong. And it just shows a tendency. So unconscious bias is just when our shortcuts go wrong and the shortcut can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about people, but it can be. And that's when it becomes problematic. I think that's great because, I mean, in fact, when I think of unconscious bias, I'm always thinking about categorizing people. You know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. But you've peeled it back, uh, saying you know, it's, it's a lot about decision making. How do we make these decisions? And I, I feel like there's so much, you know, we could go on for hours uh, to discuss how this manifests in, in you know, in our personal lives and workplaces. But um, I thought maybe just let's start looking at young people, you know, um, young person um, growing up in, in India, you know, who may not have had the multicultural experiences, but maybe a lot of interfaith experiences because of, you know, the sort mm -hmm. of India is. Um, how, because we have a lot of students that come to us, you know, with their aspirations of studying abroad, uh, but have had not had these intercultural experiences so how they can how can they develop this you know become confident individuals when they communicate uh, with um, uh, when they go to go off to university with their classmates with their uh, professors or uh, lecturers uh, how, does unconscious bias play a factor here I'm flipping it really you know rather than you know looking at a foreigner uh, and an Indian but you know looking inward uh, externally so how does that play out what can students do to be uh, more conscious of their behaviors and better communicators 
So there's a couple of things I'd say. One is a, a tip and it's the beauty of it is it, it's so simple. So you know my background, I'm an anthropologist. And so I would say the best thing they can do is ask questions and question their assumptions. The second they catch themselves making an assumption to go, that's a shortcut I've made. Those assumptions we make are our shortcuts and to question it and go, just because that's true of that one person, should I really be extrapolating it to a whole nation of people? And it doesn't matter whether you're Indian, British, American, it doesn't, we do it to all of these different kinds of nationalities. So the first thing I do is say, slow down, catch yourself making assumptions and mm. question it. The other thing I would suggest for, for Indian students is there's two big biases to be aware of that I think would be really helpful. The first is mere exposure effect. And all it says is these shortcuts we make, our brains are so lazy. All they need is one example of something. They need to see something happen once and they go, that's truth. So, you know, you see an American with a white t-shirt and a camera and a baseball hat and you're like, all Americans are like that. All 300 million of us, you know. Um, and that's mere exposure effect. Yes, it's true some of the time, but just as often as not, it's wrong. So to be, pay attention to that, to how quickly they're making shortcuts and if they're going, oh, are all people who are from this country or from you know, this gender or this class or whatever, are they making that huge assumption? And the second bias to pay attention to is called group attribution error. And this is the really, this is the problem one. this is the big one, because once you've made an assumption about a group of people and it doesn't matter who they are, you never have to talk to them again. Once you've made that assumption, you in your mind know what they're likely to think, say, and do. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem one, because as soon as you do that, as soon as you think you know what women are like or what a certain, you know, people from a certain class or country are like, why would you talk to them? You know what they're like. So that's why I'm saying question your assumptions. So I think if they can pay attention to those two things that are happening in their own brains when they come to a foreign country like the UK, um, that will help them in talking both to people who they might be making assumptions about, but catching people make assumptions about them as well. And then they can question them gently and kindly and say, well, you know, where I'm from, it's a big country. Why would you make that assumption about me, about a billion people? Um, and you can start the conversation going. Mm. Uh, and I have two questions as a follow-up to that. Um, so this questioning assumptions, you know, being mindful of where you are at that particular moment and how you uh, communicate or interact, is that a quality that one needs to develop or nurture over a certain period of time and how can one do that? And the second question really is what I have noticed predominantly amongst in Indian students who go abroad, but maybe there are other nationalities that behave in a similar manner, is sticking with their groups because university education is all about networking. You know, you need to meet the right people to get that first job or to get that fellowship or funding or whatever. Why does that happen? And what can our students do to network, to diversify themselves, you know, meet other people and not just stick with their uh, friends, you know, who are may maybe from the same country or the same region? Yeah. So I think um, that's an, it's a natural thing. It comes back to that safety and survival thing again. So 50,000 years ago, we did that. You stuck with your own because it was friend or foe and it was about survival again. But at university, hopefully, <laughs> that's not what you should be doing. And you know what? They're going to have to push themselves. Um, it's uncomfortable to go and talk to people who are different to you. It can be really uncomfortable. You are worried about being judged or maybe you're judging them. Um, but you have to do it. And that's it. Just again, some of the things about unconscious bias, the, beautiful, the beauty of it is that it's actually really simple to change. But it's hard. So simple and hard. Um, can go together. It's not, it's, they're not opposites. It's simple. You have to go and talk to other people. You have to make the effort. It's hard because you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be really uncomfortable at first doing that. Um, so I would say they must make the effort. They must make the effort, even if it hurts, even if they get rejected, there will be loads of people who will not reject them, you know, yeah. and it's hard. Um, but that's, that's, that's it. It's so simple. So it's this idea of um, birds of a feather. People tend to stick with their own because it's comfortable, because it's a known. Um, they understand each other. They, they can, you know, they have the same sense of humor or can at least understand that sense of humor. Whereas talking to different people who are different to you, 
it's um, like discovering a new landscape, you know, and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to say the wrong thing and it's hard, but you have to do it. That's it's again, I, I wish I could give a, an easier solution to it, but it's, there's no easier solution. And you're right. Networking is so important. And the beauty of networking is that you might meet people who think differently to you. And I think that's the other thing is to flip it on its head and go, actually being uncomfortable is really good. I'm uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> and what it means is your conscious mind is thinking. Your conscious mind is actually conscious. You're not just relying on that unconscious brain to get you through the day. And there's something really exciting and enjoyable about that because you'll learn more about yourself, about where you're from, just by looking at what other people do. And, and it's fascinating. Again, I'm an anthropologist, I would say that, but it is fascinating and you, it's, you'll make friends. I don't know. I, I guess I'm also an idealist, you know, I'm an idealist and I just think you'll have friends from all over the world. It's amazing. Why wouldn't you want that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and this, this um, thing you mentioned about questioning our assumptions, um, you know, for someone who is predominantly lived in a small city or a small town of India, suddenly, you know, because a lot of our students uh, come from tier two, tier three, tier four uh, places of India, not just from the big, you know, cosmopolitan cities like Mumbai or Bangalore, where they may have had some exposure of interacting with people from various backgrounds. Um, so this, this thing about questioning one's assumptions, um, how does that, how does someone nurture that you know how does that begin you know how do you start to question your assumptions what's the trigger well i think one of the best things they could do is come to another country to study because you will come right up against it so um let's see what, what would be a good example of that um i think uh let's see give me a second i'm thinking of a, a really silly example but you know um when i came over to london one of the really easy things is that you think, well, I speak English, they speak English, to be fine. And then there's an expression, you know, to table an item if you're in a business meeting. And here in Britain, it means to put it on the table, it means let's discuss it. Whereas where I'm from, it means to take it off the table. And so you can see straight away that you would um, have a misunderstanding. If a British person to me said, let's table that, I'd be like, oh, can I change the subject? And they probably think, that I was crazy. Um, and so it's even linguistic things like that will make you question it. So um, that's if you're speaking the same language. If you're going to a country where you have to speak a different language, speaking a different language triggers the conscious part of your brain because you have to think a little bit, even if it's a tiny bit about what you're trying to say in, an, in another language. And so the ways, the different metaphors we use, the different turns of phrase we have can make you question your assumptions. Um, but yeah, I think really by immersing themselves in a, a culture that's foreign to them and talking to the people of that country, they will come up against their, their assumptions and they won't even have to do anything about it to, to, it's something um, that will come naturally to them over, over time. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. So, so interesting. Um, I mean, imagine, yes. if, I was going to say, imagine if you come from a small town in India and then you come to London or New York or something like that, where there's loads of different religions, there's loads of different um, ethnicities, there's different, you know, everything's so different. If you come from a really a small place where you know everybody and um, everybody is similar in their religious background, their culture, straight away, mm -hmm. you're going to feel different. You're going to lose that comfort of being amongst people who are like you and mm -hmm. it'll make you question your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, let's move on to the workplace. So we have this amazing student who's gone abroad uh, to study, uh, luckily has found a job in the UK or the US. Most of our students do tend to go to the US. Um, and then, you know, uh, joins this uh, organization uh, that isn't really big on diversity or inclusion, you know, the, the really hot topics uh, right now. Um, how does but, you know, perceives that there is maybe some bias, you know, within the workplace because of the missed promotion or training opportunities, you know, various uh, places where um, it, it can uh, trigger. How does one raise these uncomfortable conversations within a workplace uh, setting? You know, what, what does one need to have? I think you have to think about three things. I think you have to think about yourself and go, am I comfortable 
enough because in the workplace it's different isn't it than in university at university you're there to be uncomfortable you're there to learn new things it's very different in the workplace you have to go you have to think can i afford to lose this job and that is your first hurdle because if not then i would say don't raise it you know honestly so you have to think am i comfort is it okay for me to challenge things here knowing that it may make things more difficult for me so first you have to do some self-reflection and go who am i Am I that kind of person? And can I do that right now? And if yes, that's great. Then you have to think about your organization and go, um, is it, is this the kind of, will it react? Will it, will my challenging it change anything? Because I think there are some places that aren't going to change. It's the same as people. There are some people that aren't going to change. And if it's not going to change, then I really think you have to, to consider not staying if that's an option. Um, and if you think it can change, then the third thing is to think not who are the people there who are intransigent and who are not going to change. Don't waste your time on them. Focus on the people who are wavering, you know, who you think you can. And talk to two or three people. This is a process of nudges. This is a process of chipping away. It's not going to change overnight, and especially in an organization where it's really not happening. Pick one or two people. Start small start and then you know once you can get them on board they can move on to two or three people and that's how you have to do it you know i think if you are hoping that it will just change overnight or that you you have the power to change something that big you're you might be kidding yourself so you have to be really realistic mm. um yeah and think about it because there's loads of organizations now that are big on diversity and inclusion who are making the the effort and so you have to also ask yourself is it worth investing the time on a place that's not going to change or are you better um suited to to work elsewhere I for think an optimist i know that's a cynical viewpoint but i think it's true i think people no i think feel... that's a very practical viewpoint <laughs> if you ask me because you know you've got to weigh your options and you know what is it that you have in mind for yourself you mentioned something that caught my attention you said um that some organizations or people you know they they're doing something around unconscious bias trying to tackle it in the workplace but what makes people or organizations not tackle it in the first place what stops them from making that shift I think what they what stops them from tackling it is not seeing why it's important, and there, therefore, if it's you know a nice to have rather than this is something we absolutely must do. Um, if you can't see that, then you're going to go, oh yes, it's important, but first I have this huge list of other things to do, and I will get to it. I promise. Probably you know after Christmas, after this, after that, and you never do it, and so you absolutely must have the kind of the wool removed from your eyes in order to see why it's so important. Um, and the reason that it's important is because we don't live in a meritocracy. That's ultimate. It's not about money, actually. It's, I, it drives me crazy when people ask for the return on investment um, in terms of diversity and inclusion, because that's ultimately, that's, uh, it's not really, it's, it's the wrong answer or it's the wrong question. You know, and the, the question is, well, how do we challenge the society we live in. It's not a meritocracy. It is unequal. You, if you need proof of that, all you have to do is look here in the UK, um, we have the Equality Act. If we lived in a meritocracy, we wouldn't need the mm. Equality Act. I'm sure you have something similar in India um, and you wouldn't need that if everybody were equal. And so the reason that diversity and inclusion is, should be an intrinsic part of everybody's strategy mm. is because this is something that we all should be invested in is changing our society. I, I remember when, when I was with the CIPD in, in the UK, I think you know, the government had called for the gender pay gap to be reported. And there were so many organizations that didn't do that. <laughs> they just yeah. didn't, uh, despite the government saying, you know, we need, we need to know, um, a lot of organizations did not come out with their findings, which was, which was deeply troubling. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have a follow-up question to that, you know, uh, because I'm thinking about universities, hot pot, of you know people from kids from different uh, nationalities countries um what are the pitfalls um for universities 
that aren't looking at this particular piece of unconscious bias, you know, impact of this on students. Uh, if academics, you know, did not understand their biases, what are the pitfalls and you know negative outcomes of this, and what should they be doing differently? So I think the big thing that happens is um, there's something called deficit thinking. Have you heard of that? No, and deficit haven't. thinking says, so it's the classic example, for example, here is when people say, oh, poor people, why don't they understand that if they just ate porridge, it's cheap and affordable and nutritious and they'd be fine. And you put the problem, you, you situate the problem in the individuals rather than in the system. So instead of saying, actually the problem is poverty, not that somebody who doesn't have money doesn't know about porridge, you know? And I think it's the same thing with academics. So in education, deficit thinking is a huge thing where you look at the, the student as the problem. Oh, it's because they're from whatever mm -hmm. it is, rather than going, no, no, what's wrong with our system? What's lacking in terms of our teaching or our um, inclusive culture in, an, in a university setting to make them, to, to level the playing field. Mm. And so I think academics, if you're at the front of a classroom, the classic example um, is you see people who have, you know, students who are who have, are, are problem students and you go, oh, it's their home life. Rather mm -hmm. than going, what's wrong with our society that families aren't supported? And the second thing I'd say is that there's, um, there's a lot of bias in terms of, again, people choosing people like themselves. So the classic thing or people choosing the dominant group in society. So, you know, you, you'll know this where in classrooms, teachers will tend to call on, on men more than they call on women. Um, and the really interesting thing about that and coming back to what you were saying about networks earlier, I was hearing this example and I can't remember who it was. I feel like it might have been no, I'm not sure who it was, um, talking about an example where they were aware of this. It was a professor and it was a man and he was saying, so I made really sure that in the classroom pre-COVID, I called on everybody really fairly. And then at the end of the semester, he still got complaints that he wasn't treating people fairly. And he was like, but why? And they said, oh, well, you know, at the breaks between lectures, you know, when we'd go for a coffee break or get a snack, you'd only spend time with the men. <laughs> And that those informal times are where you network and it's where he showed where, so he was consciously trying so hard to overcome it. But as soon as he relaxed, he slid right back to his unconscious preset and talked to the in-group. And that's where the, the, the networking happens. So maybe a, a trick there as well as to think about those informal times and make sure that you are treated fairly there as well. And it translates into the workplace, right? Because, you know, after work drinks, for instance, when most women can't make it, assuming, you know, they have to go back home yeah. for their kids or whatever, whatever other yeah. reasons. Um, and it just comes so naturally <laughs> to a lot of uh, managers, you know, predominantly yeah. male, again, to have these after work uh, drinks. And I'm sure that translates into universities as well, because yeah. I know when I was at university, and I'm sure when you were, it was similar. Yeah. You know, it was after class, after 6 or 7 p.m. when we would, you know, be offered to go out, but we couldn't. Yeah. Um, that That's so interesting. I did scribble a few questions as as you were speaking, and I think I have... Uh, missed the missed a very important one, but I'm sure it'll come back to me. Uh, I I I know um, for a um, no, I I actually wanted to um, share my experience of you know unconscious bias when I wasn't even aware of that you know something like that had, had exists in 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 a, in a world. Um, I was at a Christmas uh, party, and I may have told you this already. I was at a Christmas party. Uh, party concluded, so I was uh, waiting with my colleagues for my husband to pick me up, uh, and um, a lady had uh, my colleague sitting next to me had noticed uh, uh, a brown man you know enter the lounge and had assumed he was my husband but turned out he was a cab driver <laughs> so it sort of you know takes me back um, um, to my um, thinking you know whenever we speak of Indians working abroad they're either seen as doctors engineers or maybe cab drivers <laughs> and this is this is this is unconscious bias you know in action isn't it how you just categorize your yeah. uh, a certain you're race. like 
my doctor was was Indian, therefore all Indians, all a billion of you, all of you, you're all doctors. It's great. Yes. If I'm not feeling well and I'm in an airport, I just have to find an Indian. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's so important that, you know, we understand that we make these decisions and be more conscious before we say anything, I guess. Um, I know for a fact, Jasmine, that you train, you know, uh, you, you do training sessions for these ama amazing organizations and uh, leaders um, on unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion. I was wondering if you might share with us, you know, some interesting training sessions you may have had, you know, I, I, you know these real life experiences, I'm sure our audience will find very interesting. And maybe, you know, the very good ones where everything was hunky-dory, they knew unconscious bias, they were conscious about tackling it, and maybe places where they didn't know what was happening, you know, maybe share your experiences with us. Okay, so the first one I'm thinking about is, um, I won't name the organizations, but we started doing um, kind of inclusive hiring about a year and a half ago, and now they have the data. This is a, the, the good example, and so they're improving. It's slow, you know, but you could really see the result of going from unconscious bias to conscious inclusion um, in their data. And so now we've tweaked the training. So now we're doing the running it for new managers again, for um, anyone who does recruiting, um, but we can use the data to show how it works. So that's a, a, an example of it working where it just, it's amazing. Cause then anybody who's going, wow, it doesn't work. Or, um, you know, I can't see how my doing this will have an impact. They can actually look at the data and see, oh no, if I use more inclusive practices when I hire, if I use panels, if I use a structured interview, if et cetera, you know, it actually has an impact on our numbers. So that's a, an example of, um, of it working really well. And other example of an organization where it's working, but you have people who, like you say, they dig their heels in and they don't want to change and they go, well, I'm not a racist or I'm not a sexist. So how could I be engaging in unconscious bias? Um, and so an example of that was an organization, I'm trying to think of, I have two examples. I'm trying to think which one I'd like to use, um, where they had an internal process where they had images of the people who they were potentially hiring. Um, and so they knew what they looked like. And one of the, the women said, well, I like to see the pictures because they were thinking about taking them off because there's so much bias. As soon as you see a face, you decide in group or out group and game over. Um, and she was like, because, you know, if it's, um, if it's a, a brown or a black person, then I automatically feel like I want to, to give them the opportunity. And somebody else piped up and said, well, how do you know they're not a middle-class person who went to Cambridge? And so that was a really good learning experience, I think, where, you know, because that, that kind of benevolent bias is also icky. She didn't mean it, you know, good intentions, but it's, this is a scientific word, Rami, I'm sure you're familiar with it, icky, <laughs> you know? Um, or I had another example coming up against your assumptions um, where there were two women in this workplace and they were really good friends. And, but one of them had grown up working class and the other had grown up, you know, very privileged, had gone to, I can't remember Cambridge or Oxford, um, but you know, now they had the same role, the same salary. And so this, one of the women was saying, I thought we were the same. We have the same role at this organization. We have the same salary. So I thought we were so similar. And the other woman said, no, I've had to work so much harder to get here. And what I loved about that moment was that the first woman um, all of a sudden was gonna get an opportunity to know her friend for real. Mm. It took the wool away from her eyes. And I thought if that friendship can survive that kind of huge aha moment, then that's gonna be, they can now have real conversations. Mm. It's interesting because this makes me think, how does this play out within a university setting, You know, within the admissions team? Um, again, I don't know if you have any insights on this, but you know, you have someone from a working class and someone maybe who's attended private school. Um, <laughs> biases, I think, can just overshoot. Uh, and is that why is, is that the reason why some of the most prestigious institutions in the world, especially in the UK, <laughs> see a lot of private students um, yeah. going? Yeah. So there's two biases there that are really important. One's called um, performance bias. And it just says you judge some people based on their potential and some people based on their past performance. And so you tend to look a little bit at your in-group, but really the societal in-group as 
the potential. Why? Because they're familiar to you. You know, you're sort of like, oh yes, I know that those people, there tend to be positive biases about them. You make positive assumptions about them. And um, so you judge them based on their potential and potential is just about an imaginary future. That's all it is. And so they're not judged as harshly. They aren't held to formal requirements. They are promoted. And I'm sure this would be the same with um, in academia with choosing who you let in because you'd look at them and you'd go, oh, well, they're familiar to me. So yes, I know they're gonna do well. Whereas with um, the out group, you judge them on their past performance. You literally look at what's on their CV and go, oh, they did this in the past. That's all they're gonna do in the future. And generally when you have those two groups, the people you judge on potential are always gonna win. And if you're the, the hiring manager, if you're the person choosing students and you're not aware of that, you can't counteract it. Mm-hmm. You have to be aware of it. And the second bias is called um, performance attribution bias. And it just says where we see success coming from. And so again, if you look at the in-group in your society, the group that's dominant, that has power, that's, that doesn't need in general, the protection of the Equality Act, um, you'll think, and they will think this about themselves, that they got there entirely on their own steam. They won't see all of the help they've gotten, the networks that they have by being part of a powerful in-group. And so they, you'll see their, their success is innate. And so you'll think that, um, that it's all you. You don't see that you needed help from everybody else. Where as the out-group, you'll see that you know, their success is due to luck, to um, hard work, due to, um, to be given a leg up. So if you're on a short list, like an all female short list or something like that, um, people would be like, yeah, it was because she was on an off, like Harriet Harman, I think this was the people for a while would say, she got her position because she was in, you know, on an all female short list. So rather than seeing these people as just again, leveling the playing field that they faced so many obstacles that they were back here and you're just leveling the playing field, people don't see all the help that's been given to the in-group. And so when you're then selecting people, if you're on a selection committee, if you're not aware of these two things happening, you'll always give things to the in-group because you go, but they're innately successful. They're just really good. They're innately talented. I had a great example of this where um, it was a family and this young man was um, in this training session and he was saying, oh my goodness, my mother does that to, to me and my sister. So I think she said to him, she was like, you know, she was like, you're lazy, but it's okay because you're just naturally talented. And whereas she said to the sister, you're stupid, you need to work hard. <laughs> you know? And he was like, that's not what it is. We're equally smart. She just has way more obstacles to face. And I love that because I was just like, that's, that's great. We, we, we so internalize it that it's really hard to see when you're doing that. Do you, do you feel in your experience uh, or have you seen universities addressing this, you know, at a more uh, strategic level in terms of changing their systems and processes so that everyone has equal opportunities, you know, to get into the best, um, uh, best colleges, best institutions, because I'm, I'm, my, my mind goes back to, um, you know, students in India who are not from, say, Mumbai or Bangalore, but who aspire to go to some of the prestigious universities in, in, in the world. Are they swimming against the tide? It, you know, will they win? <laughs> what They're are some totally... of the practical, you know, tools that they can use to break these barriers? So two questions there, right? So yes, they're swimming against the tide. They're going to have to work really hard. That's it's life. You know, I'm sorry. That's the world we live in, which is again why you want to try and and work towards a meritocracy. We're not there yet. So yes, they're going to be swimming against the tide. Um, they have to be aware of that. And the thing is, they'll build amazing life skills doing that. So when they get to their destination, whatever it is. Um, they'll be incredibly good at it because they have to work so hard to get there. So that's the silver lining. Um, Cambridge, I think, maybe right before the pandemic, I can send you the, um, the, the original text. I think I have it somewhere, but they introduced something exactly for this reason to start to chip away at um, our unequal society. So they created a year long, it was a pilot, I think in either 2019, maybe 2020, I'm not sure. Um, But they created a pilot program for people, for students who are disadvantaged in a number of different ways, um, 
for uh, yeah, a variety of reasons. And what they did was they created a pilot year or a pilot program where they came for a year before attending university. And in that year, they learned all the stuff that goes around being a Cambridge student. So all of the stuff that people who are in the dominant in-group would just know because maybe their parents went to Cambridge or Oxford or, you know, um, I don't know, somebody in their family, a family friend. So they already have that information. So it might be things like, well, how do you interview? So no matter how smart you are, if you don't have the knowledge, the insider knowledge to know how to do an interview, you're never gonna get in. Um, and so this pilot program had this year where they would learn all of those kinds of things, what it means to be a student in Cambridge, which, you know, again, is it's unspoken, isn't it? You think, well, that's the easy bit. It's the, the knowledge going to class that's hard, but it's not. We can all learn, we're all sponges, but it's knowing the cultural element around that. And so what they said was after a year, um, I think they guaranteed 75% of the students would have a place at Cambridge and the other 25%, they'd find them a university place somewhere else. So, so yes, there's an example of a, an academic institution challenging the status quo. I mean, that's, that's really impressive because that's exactly what you need. Um, it's brilliant. I have no idea how it turned out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, yeah, because that's sort of answer those two questions. Yeah, no. Uh, and I hope more universities have the bravery to do this, I guess, you know, yeah. especially if they're, you know, from the Russell group or, you know, But it's not even bravery, is it? It's like you're, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face by not taking in all these amazing students who are super smart, who are going to bring amazing things to the table. And just because they don't have the network to give them the knowledge for the how-to, mm. you know, like I, I met this young woman, this was years ago now, and she had trained to be a doctor. And she was amazing. She was like so good at her studies. And then she failed at the first hurdle when she went to apply for a job. She had no idea what they were. She, the interview was a complete mystery to her. And so the second interview though, she aced it because then mm -hmm. she understood what was happening. And so now she tries to help other students who are in her, you know, who are in the same place as she was with understanding it's not just your education. Mm -hmm. It's knowing the kind of social aspect. How do you do an interview? Mm, that's going to help. And I mean, the more I speak with you, I think um, the more I realize that unconscious bias is not a, just a construct on its own, is that it has massive impacts on how we live, how our societies thrive, um, whether we, there are any, you know, shifts that we can make, because if we can't, then it all goes back to unconscious bias, doesn't it? Or am I stretching yeah. it? By no, no, <laughs> I think we fall back on our shortcuts. That's the whole thing. The second your conscious mind turns off, we fall back on our I do it all the time. I can tell you wrong. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like, and this is this is my job, right? But I'll be walking down the street and you know, I might see like a homeless person. I think I know your story. And then my conscious mind kicks in because I do this work and I go, wait a minute, I don't know their story at all. I how would I possibly know? You know, or different nationalities. You might go, wow, well. And then you catch yourself and you go, no, wait a minute. Right. And that's that's the key is to the second you feel, and it's a muscle, the more you do it, the more you catch yourself. So I do it often. But I catch myself because because yeah. I do it so often. I, I think I've learned to pause and think since I've yeah. learned of this concept that I yeah. pause a little and I you know exactly think, but I still keep doing it. You're right. Of course, I, we've, we've 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 read about this stuff and we still do it. We work in exactly. Well, we're human, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And it's also so deeply innate to us, you know, that, yeah, we're going to do it as long as you correct yourself. You know, it's it just if you're never corrected, if you never, if it never moves from unconscious to conscious, then you'll make terrible mistakes. As long as a conscious, your conscious mind can kick in and catch yourself making the assumptions and close that gap, mm -hmm. then, then we're onto something. And I think if more people do that, mm -hmm. then, you know, the more of us who do it, the, the, the more we make our contribution to, to changing things. So it's a small thing, but it has a big impact. I, I can't leave you without speaking about gender and unconscious <laughs> bias, because you know all that we've spoken until now, um, when gender kicks in, it's 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 an additional layer. It's, it's you know for women, of from you know people from the LGBT community, you know from the trans community. I mean, how, how much more tougher is it? 
you know, for these groups, you know, what, what can we do? What does societies need to do? What do universities need to do? Um, what do workplaces need to do? I'm sorry to throw so many questions at you, but it's just so important that, you know, that this, this layer is also discussed and we are conscious of the, you know, discrimination that happens. Yeah, I think the first thing, Ramya, is you have to look at the data. So um, there's something here called the, the Fawcett Society. Have you heard of it? And they do a sex and power report every other year. So I think we're due one coming this January. And they look at women and roles of power across every sector in the UK. And I think the first thing, because you know, in our ordinary lives, in our workplaces, in our, you know, where I went to university, we had incredibly strong women professors. So I could look at that and go, well, that's not my experience. And I think a lot of people do. And they go, oh, well, you know, the, the HRD is a woman. So that's not my, clearly women are equal. So I think you have to look at your anecdotal experience in the framework of actually the, the wider experience. Because yes, as an individual, you may have experienced that, but you have to look at the group. Yes, there's powerful women here and there, but you have to look at the big picture. So if you look at the Fawcett Society report, you see that even though we make up 50% of the population, right? Probably, I mean, technically I think 51% of the population. Um, we here in the UK, and I'm presuming, I'm sure it's the same in the US, I'm sure it's the same in India. We make up less than half of the positions of power in every sector across the UK, except I think magazine editors. <laughs> How did um, that happen? <laughs> I, well, yeah, I guess. Well, you, I, you look at women's magazines. Maybe there's more of them. Or I don't. And even then, I don't know. So, and that's what I present to people. I present them with data because you look at that and you can't go, well, that's not my experience. Because you go, maybe it's not, but it's your experience is irrelevant. This is what's happening. So you start with the data, and the data is incontrovertible. You know, you cannot disagree with data. Sorry, it's a fact. Um, and you can do the same thing with ethnicity as well, but that's where I'd start. You give them that, and then you go, well, as an administrator, as somebody working in academia for crying out loud, what are you gonna do? Because we also have to recognize that we can't shoulder all of the burden. We need allies, so with gender, we need yes. men to kick in. And one of the first things is opening their eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, and for them to see the data, and this usually, you know, all my explanations about unconscious bias and how the brain works, and you know, people are like, oh, that's interesting. And it's only when they see the data that they go, oh, well, my experience was different, but this is the data you're showing me, and I can't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. The yeah. data is what does it. So that's my big, um, my big suggestion is to be able to share the data with people, to collect the data on this, and then show like it the to data, people. Yes. Yeah, because I, I did, you know, whilst you're speaking, I did scribble allies because I, I was, you know, so useful, I'm sure, for, you know, people working and also for students to have uh, allies, you know, someone who's from, you know, a different uh, background who's going abroad. Um, how, how, how does this, um, you know, manifest itself? You know, how does one find an ally, um, you know? whilst in college or universities, what can universities do? What can colleges do? What can schools do? I mean, what, what can we all do to find allies in our societies? I think the first thing, again, I think this has been a little bit of a theme, but the first thing is you have to do some self-reflection because, you know, I think it's really important to point out that even if you are from an out group, so, you know, if you're further away from, from the center of power, so you're on the margin, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a victim. And I think it's really important that whether somebody's a victim or not is for them to decide and in general. And so I think we have to look at ourselves. So like you and I as women might look at ourselves and go, yes, I'm from a marginalized group in that sense, right? I'm from a group that has less or no power as a group. But we can also look at ourselves and go, um, well, I'm white. So I'm from, so that's a, a, a powerful in-group. I can be an ally to somebody. And you are middle class. We're both middle class, right? So we can go, oh, we're from a powerful in-group. We're middle class. So we can help somebody. We can be an ally. So I think it's, again, to look at yourself and go, well, where, where is my power? Where am I closer to the center so that I can be an ally? Um, and I think it starts there, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what we, we have control over ourselves. Um, and then other people need to 
if everybody did that again, right? If everybody spent some time going, well, where is my, where am I close to the center of power, and therefore, who can I help? Um, who can I be an ally to? And let's not forget, it's you're not necessarily helping the people who are marginalized. You're ultimately helping society because it's not right. good for any of us, right? I'm hurt by by this unequal society we're in, even if I'm more close to the center of power, I'm still hurt by it in a different way. So um, I think it's again about pushing people to do that reflection and go, where am I close to the center of power? Where am I far from it? Mm -hmm. You know, and then having those conversations. And we all have our own center of powers, right? They can vary from you to me or... Mm -hmm. I mean, no, the center of power is always the same, right? It's societal. So if you were to look here in the UK, you'd see that it's a certain race, class, gender, probably geographical location, um, schooling, right? Mm. That center of power is the same mm. on a societal level. Does that make sense or am I misunderstanding your question? But if, if say, I, I was working in the UK, um, Again, maybe some assumptions here. I may perceive myself not being, you know, close to the center of power given my race or, you know, gender, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, so how? I mean, I don't know where I, I did have a thought in my mind about that. So, so yes, the, the point I was trying to make is so my perception of center of power would be different to your perception of center of power, right? Because um, or a man, you know, let's let's think of a white, white, privately educated uh, man who is my manager. Um, clearly, my center of power would be different to his or the degree of power or influence I have would be different. Yeah. Is yes. that what you mean by center of power? No. So what I mean is, again, coming back to in-groups and out-groups, who has the power in our society? So what group of people are the powerful in-group? Who, right. who has the privilege in your country, in your um, area. So I think the center. Of it's power, a more societal thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, 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 right. yes. Right. This right. Is, so a lot of the things that we're talking about are societal rather than individual. Right. right? right. So right. that center of power, we, you and I will both be further away from it because we're women. Mm. I might mm. be closer to it because I'm white. We might both be closer to it because we're middle class. You know, um, there's a lot of variables that we need to think. There's of. a lot of variables. So both of right. us here in the UK, when you were living here, we'd be further away in the in the fact that we weren't citizens. Mm. Now, now I've become a citizen, so I am a little bit. But even then, <laughs> I'm not close to the center of the power in the same way as somebody who's born a citizen. Mm. Right. right. It's still. It's not quite the same. Um, so yeah, so yes, it really does vary from person to person. That's why we have to reflect on it mm, and think right. about where we are. Mm, I feel like we can have a completely uh, another conversation about center. <laughs> There's something called the wheel of power, and either I can email it to you, but if you Google it, you'll find it. If you Google wheel, wheel of, power. of power, yeah, right. and and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, it's a it's a really useful tool that I use. Um, and the da Daniel Kahneman's book as well, right? I mean, I, I read it, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, Daniel uh, Kahneman, absolutely. I mean, he has said it so well that why reinvent the, the, the wheel when you could refer to it. He's just come out with a new book as well. He's like oh, 80, nice. 88 years old or something like that. He's just published a new book. He's, I mean, that's, that's a role model. <laughs> I guess age is just a number. <laughs> age is just a number, exactly. That was my age bias showing up there, wasn't it? <laughs> See what I mean? I do it all the time. You do it every day. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, we've, we've, I, I know I've taken up a lot of time. We've spoken for about 40 minutes, but I wanted to get your final reflections and thoughts. Um, for, you know, working for an organization that works very closely with students, you know, young kids who, as I said, are going abroad. Fall admissions are opening up. Uh, well, admission intakes are opening up soon. Uh, spring admissions in the US uh, will be starting in Jan, February. So just focusing on this particular group, your final advice, guidance, suggestions as they go into this new world of diversity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being part of this uncomfortable conversations or whatever that, they, that they'll be having. So what guidance or advice would you give them? I'd say don't be afraid of the uncomfortable conversations, seek them out for sure. Um, and, you know, they're there not just for the education, for, for you know, taking this particular course at a university. Um, they're there also for the cultural immersion. And 
because I mean, it will change their lives if they come back or stay whichever way and they have American friends, then that's really going to enrich their lives in the same way as a university education does, or not in the same way, but, you know, um, and so it's really well worth it and to take full advantage of that. So yeah, my final advice, talk to, talk to people, talk to Americans, keep talking to them if that's where they're going, wherever they're going. Some of us are really friendly, I promise. I <laughs> <laughs> can uh, vouch for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly, you know, um, but just that, talk to people, keep talking to people, talk to as many right. people as you can. You know, when I moved to the UK, I didn't have any friends here. And I was I, just about to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. How and was it I, it was really hard, you know, at first. And I just, and also because, um, you know, I'd say I'm, I'm an ambivert. So I'm not a hundred percent introvert. I'm not a hundred percent extrovert. I think you can't be either. I'm somewhere in the middle, but you know, so it's, it's hard. Mm. And I just, because of work is what I need to find work. I did so much networking and I networked and I networked and I worked and I went to things I was so uncomfortable I think after my the first networking thing I went to I cried I was it was so hard that was before I met you um and the more I went the easier it got mm. and after I think probably a solid two years of networking network not only did my business improve but I made amazing friends I mean yeah. I'm knocking on wood here I feel really lucky for, for, for that, but that was all down to the network. It's the, the most important thing. It's true, it's where you find your friends, it's where you find work, you know. Yeah, I know, I, I think international education has given me friends from so many countries. Well, you I probably, mean. yeah, exactly. You probably <laughs> yeah. had exactly the same experience and you came yeah. here when you were much younger than I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was a big cultural shift, but I, I've only, I only have fond memories. I have friends from, you know, everywhere. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. I'm, some of our neighboring countries who apparently don't get along, you know, if you believe media stories, I have friends from those countries. And it's just amazing. Again, you know, it's deconstructing or, um, you know, breaking all these biases that I had in my head because of what the media puts in, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you and know, they were challenged when you had to talk to somebody who was from a different country that you had an assumption about that hadn't been challenged before, and all of a sudden you meet them, and you're just like, oh wait, yeah. oh wait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I was I was lucky that my parents studied abroad and they had friends from those countries. So for me, when I met people from those countries, it was just uh, believing, you know, what I was seeing, what my parents had told me. So yeah. I guess it's a lot. I guess we can have a completely different conversation on how media mm -hmm. reinforces biases in people. Oh but... my goodness! Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's, that's for another day. For uh, another but day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for another day for sure. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, thank you so much for uh, answering uh, my questions, being patient, um, because I know I asked them really basic ones. <laughs> oh, you asked really uh, good questions. I I'm, hope that I'm, I was... Sorry? <laughs> I said you asked really good questions. No, no, I'm just glad that we have, we have this conversation initiated. You know, because I think this is a very important topic. We should be talking about this a lot more. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jasmine, so much. And uh, we hope to speak to you again. Uh, you. And good luck with whatever you have planned. Uh, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to speak to me as well. It's always, always a pleasure. <laughs>